Well, good morning, everyone. And I'm glad each one of you are here, and I hope you're blessed. Uh, Pastor Frank Jr., his uh, message that he did the first service, you really want to watch it online. It was really, really good. It was a blessing. And uh, I hope all of you picked up one of these on the way in. Did you? Okay, you're going to need it as I go over the teaching. Uh, we will not be having um, Wednesday night prayer uh, Bible study this week or next week because it's Christmas Day and New Year's Day. But we will be having a Christmas Eve service on Tuesday, and I encourage you to come. Uh, it's a great time for us to just contemplate the fact that Jesus Christ came. I mean, historically, and it's, not the actual probab- it's probably not the actual time of year that he came, but he did come. He came to earth that he might free man from all of his sin. And so that is the purpose of our uh, Christmas Eve service. We sing traditional you know, uh, Christmas carols, and, and we also um, um, have a little teaching. I teach why did Jesus need to come, and then Pastor Frank Jr. will teach the purpose of his coming and what it accomplished. And then, of course, we end with the candles and Silent Night, you know, the old traditional Christmas Eve. That we encourage you to come. And also, you get to see me in my Christmas tie if you come. And if you wonder what my Christmas tie is, the first year Vi and I were together, 50 years ago, she gave me a tie for Christmas. I gave her a car, but anyway. <laughs> but she gave me a tie, a tie for Christmas, and I have worn it every Christmas Eve since then. Isn't that cool? And so you get to see a little you know, thread bearing and stuff like that, but you get to see my bright Christmas tie. And, and plus, we have a great time together. And um, so anyway, let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you so much for your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. It gives us wisdom and direction. And I ask, Heavenly Father, that you would use the teaching this morning to truly minister to each one who is here, that they might be encouraged in you and in all your ways. Father, the things of this life can be so discouraging and so, just so burdensome. But in you, we have, we have peace. In you, our burden is lifted. In you, we have purpose and direction. And so, Father, I pray that you would come and minister your wisdom to each one here this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You know, probably this morning as we go through, the, through this teaching, you're going to see the old science teacher in me, the old math teacher in me, because um, I like to look at numbers and lay them out in such a way that it has meaning, because we have to understand that everything that was written in this book that we call the Bible had a purpose and reason for it to be put in there. This is the most accurate book that anyone can ever read. And some of the things that we find in Scripture as we dig in are mind-blowing. You can't exhaust this book. I don't know how many times I've read it. I don't know how many times I've taught through it. Because, you know, in our fellowship, we teach every word. We go right through the Bible. And every time, something more comes out, something more comes out. And so this morning, we are in... Numbers chapter 2, and you know, when we look at portions of scripture like this, uh, it might seem like, wow, what's in here? But in reality, what's in here is very mind-blowing, because one of the things we have to realize is that all of scripture points to God. It points to the coming of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ. You know, there are some people that have a problem with the Trinity. 
They'll say, how can there be, you know, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet one God? How can that be? Well, think about this. You, as an individual, are body, soul, and spirit, yet you're one person. Right? We have a body, you know, that has to exist in our environment and requires certain nutrients and water and all kinds of stuff. You know, we have a body. We know that. We have a soul, which is our personality, uh, you know, who we are as a person, and our different desires and wants and so forth. But we also have a spirit, the cardi, the heart, the inner man, that is reaching for something higher than this world has to offer, reaching to God. And so we understand the importance of the Trinity in ourselves, and we need to understand the importance of the Trinity in the Word of God. Jesus is the one who was testified to all through Scripture because he is the one who would redeem man back to himself. Now, you understand, we wouldn't need the Bible if Adam and Eve never sinned. Do you realize that? We wouldn't need it. But they did sin, and there became a separation between God and man, and that separation was called sin. And so, therefore, sin had to be atoned for, and that's why Scripture from beginning to end is testifying to us that Jesus is the Messiah who, who would redeem us back to God by the forgiveness and removal of our sin. It's absolutely amazing. And I've heard someone say that the Old Testament is Christ concealed and the New Testament is Christ revealed. I don't agree with that. I think the Old Testament is Christ revealed. I think the New Testament is Christ revealed. The one is the promise of his coming. The other one is he has come. And in Psalm chapter 40, verse 7, it says this. Then I said, Behold, capital I, I come in the scroll, the book it is written of me. And then it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 7, and it says this. Then I said, Behold, and this is talking about Jesus coming. Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me. To do your will, O God. And so, it's telling us that this book is about Jesus Christ. This book is about the gospel. The good news that he would bring to us that we might have our sins forgiven and be back into relationship with God. And we're going to find in this chapter of Leviticus, chapter 2, we're going to find the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And it might seem amazing, and, and I'm not going to actually read every verse of the gospel. I hope you, I mean, of uh, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, I'm sorry, chapter 2. But I hope when you get home, you'll read all of Numbers chapter 2. But I'm going to be laying out what is in this particular chapter. In verses 1 and 2, it talks about the tabernacle, which was the presence of God. And it was the very center of the camp of Israel. Pastor Frank shared last uh, message that the tabernacle was placed in the very center of the camp, and then the Israelites camped around it. And the tabernacle represented the presence of God. And so we have to understand that as Christians, our purpose of gathering together is to gather around fellowship in the presence of God, that he would be here with us. And so the reality is that any church that is a Christian church that really understands and believes the Scriptures knows that when we come together is to have fellowship with him and with one another. That's our purpose, to study his word, to praise his name, and to have fellowship together in him. 
And uh, the thing we have to understand is the Lord is not the center of our church. We really have to understand this. All we do is have a religious gathering. There are a lot of groups that get together every week, and they have religious gatherings. But you know what religion is? Religion is man's attempt to have a relationship to God. Guess what? It doesn't work that way. God condescended and came to earth to have a relationship with us. We don't reach up to God. God reached down to us. We have to understand that. And that's the reason, if it's a true Bible-believing Christian church, we come together to worship the Lord, understanding that he is here to save souls and to heal hearts. That's why God is here. Now, church, then, is not about anything else but worshiping and serving the Lord. Now, one of the things I I think that's very interesting, um, the remainder of this chapter, as I said, is all about the tabernacle that was in the middle of the camp and then the, the tribes of Israel as they camped around the tabernacle. And this is what the Israeli camp would have looked like if you were up on a hillside looking down at it. And if you look at the cover of the pamphlet that I passed out to you, this one right here, I mean, this is just a a rough, and we're going to get into more detail of what it would have looked like. All around the the desert, Sinai Desert, all, all around the wilderness where they were, there were these large mountains. And you can imagine that there might have been people up on these mountains looking down at the Israeli encampment, and it would have been absolutely 100% mind-blowing to see. Absolutely. And um, in the center of the camp, of course, was the tabernacle. And the tabernacle, only the Levites could serve in the tabernacle, and they're the only ones that were able to camp right around it. Now, the Levites were made up of three clans and also Moses and Aaron. You had the clan of Gershon, Kohath, Meram, and then on the other side, on the east side, you had Moses, Aaron, and their sons. Moses and Aaron and their sons, they served in the tabernacle as priests. They took care of making sure everything was taken care of as far as the offerings and the sacrifices that were made for the people. They were the priests of the tabernacle. But the other tribes of Israel that were on the other three sides, the north, west, and uh, north, south, and west side of the tabernacle, their purpose was to carry the tabernacle and to keep it up. When we get further on in Numbers, we're going to find that different tribes uh, or different clans of of, um, the Levites, they had responsibilities, some to tear the tabernacle down and to carry the stakes and, 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 the, and you know, the different coverings and like that. And you had other, other uh, clans that were responsible for carrying the Ark of the Covenant and all the things that went with it, and, the, and then the other articles of worship. And so that was the purpose of the, of the whole uh, tribe of Levi, but the three clans had those responsibilities of taking care of the tabernacle proper, and Aaron and Levi... Uh, were the priests. Aaron and his sons were the priests of the tabernacle itself. Now, um, at this point, we're going to find that the Levites aren't listed. These are just the 12 tribes of Israel. The Levites will be listed in chapter 3, which I have next Sunday morning, and we'll be looking into that. But the Levites are not listed uh, in this chapter. Um, But Abraham's grandsons... 
the grandson Jacob, Abraham's grandson Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And uh, the word Israel means God is present, or, or God is here. It means child of God. It has different meanings like that. Now, here are the 12 sons of Israel. This is what makes up Israel, the 12, the 12 tribes. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishakar, Zebulun, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Nephtali, Gad, and Asher. And if you take notes, write down 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Genesis chapter 35 and verses 22 through 26. And Genesis chapter 49, verses 1 through 28. And it lists these tribes and how they were separated. And we're going to find it's very interesting. So hang on here and follow me closely, okay? Now, this is the origin of Israel's 12 tribes that we just mentioned here. However, when it came to organizing Israel for military purposes, God told Moses that, that the tribe of Levi was not to be listed with the men of war. They were not to go into battle. And so you have a problem here. You have one of the tribes being eliminated. In other words, they weren't allowed to be listed as a fighting tribe. They were the ones who would take care of ministering in the temple. So what did they do? They took Joseph and took his name out of the tribes of Israel and replaced it with his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. So now you have 12 tribes. But instead of Joseph, you have Manasseh and Ephraim because the Levites had to be separated from war for the very purpose of ministering to God in the tabernacle. And if you take notes again, that's found um, in, in Numbers chapter 1, verses 32 through 35, and also in um, verses 47 through 50. And you might want to write down, too, um, the whole idea of who Manasseh and Ephraim are in Genesis 48, verse 1, verse 5, and verse 9. I like to give you these references because the whole thing that you need to understand, we have to compare everything to the Word of God. We took the name Berean. The Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the, the Word of God with all eagerness, but daily they examined the Scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. I want you to know that what I'm sharing with you is true, that it's the Word of God. And that's why I take time to give you all these references. Now, Recognizing the division in the tribe, in other words, Joseph was removed, and then we have uh, um, Ephraim and Manasseh taking their place. Keeping that in mind, I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 7 and verses 4 through 8. Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 through 8. And in Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 through 8, we have the 12 tribes of Israel listed again. But here's the interesting thing. It's different than the list we have in Numbers. It's different than the list we have in Genesis. It's a little different. 
And there's a reason for it, but let's look at Revelation. Chapter 7, starting with um, verse 4. And, and the list of the 12 tribes is different. You have Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Nephtalim, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi is listed now, Issachar, uh, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now that's interesting because Joseph and Manasseh are listed along with Levi. Why? Because they replaced Dan and Ephraim. Dan and Ephraim are not listed in this particular account. They're listed in the Genesis account. They're listed in Numbers, but they're not listed here. Why? Well, because Dan and Ephraim were removed from the tribes of Israel. And the reason is they rebelled against God. Dan had their inheritance in the southern, right outside of Jerusalem. And they rejected their inheritance, and they moved to the far north, where God did not intend them to go. And on top of that, because they wanted to separate from the southern tribe of Judah and Benjamin, they didn't want their people going in and worshiping God in Jerusalem. So consequently, they established Baal worship, so that the northern tribes worship Baal. And that's why when we go through Kings and Chronicles, the northern kingdom didn't have one good king because they were in total rebellion from the beginning. And then we find that Ephraim, right behind Dan, followed suit in forcing the people to follow Baal. So God removed them. They're gone. And so you have Joseph takes the place of one of them, and Levi takes the place of the other. Now, What's interesting here is why would Levi now be a tribe? Because a separated priesthood is no longer necessary. There's no longer a need for separated priesthoods. Because we have to realize that according to, if you take notes, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, you and I are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God to declare his praises and glory. We're a royal priesthood now. We're the ones who declare the praises of God. We don't need any human priest to mediate between us any longer. So Levi no longer had that position, so they could be listed with the rest of the tribes. And Joseph was put in there with his son Manasseh because Dan and Ephraim were removed. So if you ever wondered, when you go through Scripture and, and you look at Revelation, you say, why are the 12 tribes different? That's the reason. The, the Bible's amazing. I mean, there's a good reason for everything we find in Scripture, obviously. Now, getting back uh, to our account of the Levites, and you're not going to find that in chapter 2. We're going to find this in chapter 3. The number of Levites was 45,000 from the three clans of the Levites, Koath, Gershon, and Merriman. And they surrounded the north, south, and west side of the tabernacle. And, of course, the east side was reserved for, for Moses and Aaron. And Aaron and his sons were the ones that served as priests, entering through the eastern gate. Now, um, 
Here's the thing we have to understand. When we come to the number in each of the clans that are mentioned here in in Numbers chapter 3, as far as uh, the Levites are concerned, we have to double the number. Why? Because it tells us very plainly that as far as the Levites were concerned, they only numbered males from one month old and up. The only ones that were numbered were males from one month old and up. So if you wanted to get a more accurate number of how many Levites there were in the tribe of Levi, you had to double it in order to accommodate approximately the same number of women. You follow my point? And that's where we come up with the number 45,000 total men and women that were of the tribe of Levi. Now, the tabernacle itself, we know from discussing its its construction in the last uh, book, the tabernacle was 75 feet on the east and west and 100 feet on the north and south. And page 2 you have a little diagram of the tabernacle. It's all blue, and it's where the particular tribes were were, uh, placed. The three clans of Levi were on the west, north, and south, while Moses and Aaron occupied the east, which I mentioned is very significant, and we'll get into that a little bit later. It's very significant. Now, if you take the clans of Levi, okay, and you have this conservative population of 45,000, if you allow four square feet per person, and that's not much, right? This is really conservative, because we're talking about setting up camp. And if you're talking about four square feet per person, that's very conservative. But if you take four square feet per person times the 45,000 Levites, you have a very conservative number of about... 180,000 square feet for the three clans of Levi. And they surrounded the three sides of the tabernacle, west, north, and south. And if you divide the required 180,000 square feet by three sides, it would require 60,000 square feet per side of the three sides of the tabernacle. You can see the little diagram there. This would take a space, if you want to write this in, this is the approximate space it would take um, in order for that number, 60,000. It would be 200 feet by 300 feet in the three sides. You would have 200 feet by 300 feet in order to support that number of the clans of Levi. But on the east side, it was occupied by Moses and Aaron and his sons because they were the priests of the tabernacle. The east side is where the opening to the entrance of the tabernacle to the Holy of Holies actually was. And the high priest entered through the eastern gate, the eastern side of the tabernacle, to go in with the blood of the sacrifice to offer it in the presence of God. And so when the priest of Israel was atoning for the sins of the tribes of Israel, the people, the children of Israel, he took the blood And he went in through this eastern gate, and he went in through the eastern entrance into the tabernacle, into the holy place, and then once a year on the Day of Atonement into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. So it's interesting, if you want to turn to Hebrews chapter 9, this is very, very interesting. 
And this is what I meant when I said we no longer need a priesthood, because Jesus came. The purpose of the priest was to offer the blood sacrifice for the sins of the people. But turn to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12. Hebrews 9, 12. Look at what it says. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his, capital H, talking about Jesus, with his own blood, he, capital H, entered the most holy place. Look at it. Once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Wow. Jesus doesn't need to offer sacrifice over and over. You know, the blood of goats and bulls and calves, that was just temporary. But Jesus entered in once and for all time and for all people to make atonement for our sin. That's the reason Scripture tells us anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. No one's excluded. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Now, in Acts chapter 3 and verse 2, talking about this eastern gate, the high priest entered through the eastern gate, okay? And um, we also we're going to find in a moment, but we'll talk about that in a minute. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 2, it says, A certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. Shahar Araham, and, and that's what it is in the Hebrew, and it, the gate Beautiful literally means the gate of mercy. So that's where they laid this lame man. And remember, he was healed and got up and gave glory to God. That occurred at the eastern gate, the eastern side. If you have your picture of the tabernacle where Moses and Aaron were, where the priests were. Now you and I are the royal priesthood of God. And then in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 uh, through 6, we find it was through this gate that Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem and the people claimed him as being the Messiah. Hosanna to King David in the highest. How amazing is that? Now, the thing that's interesting is that the, the original eastern gate was actually cemented off by Salamine the Magnificent. And he was the head of the Ottoman Empire. He was the mullah of the Muslim of the Ottoman Empire. And he took the eastern gate because he knew the prophecies and he covered it up with 15 feet of concrete. And the reason he did it is because he didn't want the Messiah to come through it. He knew the prophecies that the Messiah would come back. This is in the 1500s. He didn't want the Messiah to come through. See, what a lot of people don't realize is that Islam is a made-up religion. I'm not trying to be ugly, or, or I'm just... Factually, it's a made-up religion. Because you had Muhammad, who... I won't even get it. He was a weird guy. But you have Muhammad, and he wanted to establish his own religion. And... He went to the, to the Jews and said, we want to be part of you. And the Jews said, no, because you have a lot of beliefs that are wrong. He went to the Christians and said, we want to be part of you. And they said, no, because you have a lot of weird ideas that don't go along with Scripture. And so consequently, he actually captured some Jewish scribes and scholars, and he had them write their Bible, what they call the Bible, the Koran. And then it's separated by surahs or chapters. And the interesting thing is, if you actually study the Quran, Jesus Christ is in it, but they don't see it because they're blind to it. 
because these scribes, they were, you know, writing it out, and they added this stuff to kind of fool the Muslims. But the point is, the reason the Magnificent cemented this off is because he wanted to prevent the Messiah from coming through it. Because it was prophesied that when Jesus came back to earth, he would go through that gate. Now, what's interesting is the sealing off of the eastern gate was prophesied. In Ezekiel, if you want to write this down, chapter 44 and verses 1 through 2, Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces towards the east, the eastern gate. But it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened. And no man shall enter it, because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it. Therefore, it shall be shut. Jesus entered through it in the triumphant entry. And it's called the triumphant entry because we think of it as his downfall. It wasn't. He died on the cross to fulfill his prophecies and and the reason he came that you and I might be freed from sin. So he entered through it. We call it the triumphant entry because it was triumphant. Because through the death of Jesus Christ, you and I are a royal priesthood. You and I are saved, are born again, have the assurance of heaven. And this prophecy is telling us this gate's going to be shut until the Messiah comes back through it again. Now, in Zechariah 14, 3 through 4, it tells us that when Jesus comes back, this gate will no longer be shut. All right? And in Zechariah, it's talking about Revelation when Jesus comes back with the hosts of heaven, we're with him, and all the armies of the earth come against him, and he fights against them, and he destroys them. And then he goes to the Mount of Olives to enter in to Old Jerusalem into the, into the temple. So in Zechariah chapter 14, turn there with me. Zechariah 14. It's okay to use your index if you don't know where some of these books are. Okay. Zechariah 14, verses 3 and 4. Zechariah 14, verses 3 through 4. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, all the nations that are gathered together against him. If you read Revelation 19, 20, as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, (coughs) excuse me, listen, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north and half towards the south. So that's wild. So when Jesus comes back, it's prophesied he would enter once again into the old city of Jerusalem and into the temple through the eastern gate. But the thing is, the eastern gate that's there now is not the original eastern gate not the original eastern gate because any of you who've been to israel with us you know that in order to go back and find ancient sites we have to dig down because as time goes dust comes and they settle and so forth so the eastern gate is no longer visible and there are archaeologists and we're going to be looking at one um, 
particular archaeologist in a moment, but I'll save that, who have tried to find the original eastern gate, but they were prevented from doing it because there was a Muslim cemetery in front of it. So they weren't allowed to excavate. They weren't allowed to find it, you know, to dig for it. But the discovery of the original eastern gate, as I said, they couldn't excavate it, but you have Dr. James Fleming. Now, Dr. James Fleming, you can look him up online. He's an archaeologist of esteem from Hebrew University. And Dr. Fleming, when he was still working on his Ph.D., and he was actually doing his Ph.D. on the Eastern Gate and its significance biblically, and he was in the spring of 1969. He, it was a very rainy spring, more rain than normal, and he was outside the Eastern Gate that's there now taking pictures of it. And the ground underneath him collapsed. And he fell down through the ground about 15 feet. And right in front of him was the original eastern gate. So the original eastern gate is now about 15 feet under the present eastern gate. And what is this telling us? Jesus will place his foot in the Mount of Olives and it will separate in two causing this valley, and it'll go right down to the original eastern gate, and Jesus will go through it just as was prophesied through the original eastern gate. How can you look at things like that and not understand this is the word of God? This is true. This is absolutely amazing. You can't make that kind of thing up. It's absolutely amazing. It just blows my mind when I look at it. Okay, and, um, you know, he's, the reason he's going to go through the original eastern gate is because he's going into Jerusalem to establish his throne for the millennial kingdom, for the millennial, his millennial reign. It's amazing. Everything's set up for it. You under, realize how, you know, you watch the news and you want to slit your throat. Just joking. Not, not really. Because politics, politics, politics politics. Do you know what's been going on in Israel the last week? No, of course you don't. It's not reported because politics, politics, politics. But we need to be looking up because everything is taking place to set up exactly as the Bible says it would be when Jesus calls his church out of the world and he sets out his wrath on the earth. It's that close, brothers and sisters, that Jesus is coming for us. And it's so, so amazing because people say, well, how can we have a resurrected body? I mean, if you've already died, and you re- what are we? We're deoxyribonucleic acid. We're DNA. That's what we are. You know what DNA is? Information. And when you have the genetic code, you just have an alphabet of who you are. So for Jesus, who knew us from before the foundations of the earth were laid, guess what? He can create us right back up into who we are with our glorified bodies. And, and if we're, you know, it's, it's amazing. I get excited because it's exciting. You know, it's so amazing because people say, well, as science goes on further and discovers more and more intellectual concepts of the universe and so forth, Christianity and religion is just going to go by the wayside. No. The more science has become evolved, I hate using that term, but the more science has grown, the more it proves the Bible. 
It's absolutely amazing. Did you know that there are a group of archaeologists, they call themselves biblical archaeologists. They're not believers. These aren't Christians. These aren't, you know, Jews that are believers. These aren't believers. The reason they call themselves biblical archaeologists is because they found the Bible to be true as far as putting the place and location of different archaeological sites. And they use the Bible to go and find places. And they're there. It's absolutely amazing. Now, getting back to the location of the tribes, okay? Around the tabernacle. You have Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun on the east side with the standard or banner of a lion. Tells you that as you study Ezekiel 2. I want you to read it when you get home. Then you had Reuben, Gad, and Simeon on the south side with the standard of a man. Then you had Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh on the west side with the standard of an ox. Then you had Dan, Asher, and Nephtali on the north side with the standard of an eagle. Well, what's the point of that? Well, write this down. Write this down. Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 10 through 11 and Revelation chapter 6, or chapter 4, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 4, verses 6 through 11. And the reason I tell you to write that down, because you have the living creatures with the face of a lion, a man, an ox, and an eagle. It's found in those portions as well. These same, it's amazing. Now, I love it um, in Revelation chapter 5, verses 4 through 6, because we have to understand Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Israel, right? You have the lion. That was the first one. That's where uh, Moses and Aaron and their families were, on the eastern gate. They had the lion as their standard. And it says, I wept much because no one was found worthy to open uh, and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loosen its seven seals. That's Jesus Christ. And then as far as the standard of a man, it represents that God would become flesh. And if you take notes, write down John 1.14, the word became flesh, you know that one. And write down Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7 who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a man. So we know God became man in Jesus Christ. As far as the ox is concerned, the standard of the ox, the ox is a beast of burden. And then in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus calls people and he says, Come to you, all of you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, take your yoke upon me. Jesus is saying, I'm the ox who's going to carry your burden. I'm going to be the one who'll carry your burden for you, just like the standard of the ox. And then the eagle, of course, represents freedom and endurance. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, it says, But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. And that's why it tells us in the Gospel of John, chapter 8 and verse 36, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The eagle. 
So Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah who became a man to carry our burdens that we might be set free from the bondage of sin and death and soar with wings of eagles. Why are those standards there? You've got the gospel. You've got every prophecy of Jesus Christ. And I won't get into this, but you can take the four gospels, and the four gospels also represent these four creatures. It's absolutely amazing. Now, in attempting to ascertain the total population of each of the 12 tribes, we have to compute the number of fighting men. This is different than the Levites. The Levites counted all men from one month old and up. And so you just doubled their number to get their population. But with uh, the, the 12 tribes, you, you actually numbered the fighting men, as given in the, in the you know, biblical record. And uh, then you figure there would at least be an equal number of women, right? Women usually outnumber men. We're being very conservative. So if you had that many fighting men, you'd have this many adult women. And then if you considered each, child, each family had two children, that is how you can get a very conservative, but probably likely, at least it might probably would be bigger, but a, a very conservative estimate of the tribes. So when you had Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun on the east side, that's where Moses and Aaron were. you got your little diagrams there. They had a total population of 505,200. Reuben, Simeon, and Gad on the south side with a total population of 454,350. Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, you'll find that on your diagrams in there as well. On the west side with a total population of 324,300. And then on the, north, on the north side, you had Dan, Asher, and Naphtali with a total population of 432,800. Now, this gives us a total population, counting the 45,000 Levites, of 1,835,600 people, and that is not counting those who came with the Israelites. In fact, you can read Scripture and it will tell you that they brought this um, mixed multitude that came with them. That would easily put the population of this group wandering the wilderness around 2 million. And as Pastor Frank mentioned this morning, he said you could take the three counties that we have, you know, Madison County, Onondaga County, and Oneida, what's the other county? What was it? It's Wigona. If you take all those counties, it's only about 800,000. Can you imagine? We're talking here of probably 2 million people. Now, under Judah's banner on the east, you had 500, and and, and this is taking our calculations now, you know, of of adding an equal number of adult women and two children. So under Judah's uh, banner on the east, you had 505,200 times the four square feet per person. Super conservative. That would occupy 2,020,800 square feet. But the width could not be any wider than the tabernacle proper, including the Levites, so it couldn't be any wider than 300 feet, which would make the length... So the tribe of, um, of Judah and Issachar and Zebulon would be 300 feet wide. They're all going to be 300 feet wide, and it'd be 8,000 feet long. So it would be one and a half miles. Or some people ask, 
Well, how do we know the columns were straight? Because very specific direction is given, that they're to be on the east side, the north side, the west side, not northeast, not northwest, not southeast. You understand what I'm saying? They couldn't spread out. They had to be directly, directly in line, parallel with the particular sides of the tabernacle according to where they were assigned. And so anyway, Judah, as it lined up like that, would end up being uh, 300 feet by a mile and a half long. On the west side, you would have a population of 324,300 times 4. And um, one, I'm just going to give you, it would, so on the, on the north side, which is the shortest side, it would be 300 feet by 4,000 feet long, about three-quarters of a mile long. And the tribes that occupied the north and south side were approximately the same size. And Reuben and Dan were approximately 450,000, and multiplying it all out, so it would end up being 300 feet by 600 feet. They would be the shortest. So now, if you take these tribes as they're lined up on the tabernacle, remember they can't be northeast or, uh, you know, uh, or northwest. It had to be just north, and it had to be just south. And then where the Abraham and, and Moses had to be just east, and it had to be just um, west. So if you look on your outline there, you have a cross. So if someone was standing up on a mountainside, they were seeing a nearly two-mile cross. Now think about this. In the tabernacle itself, you had a cross within the cross. I don't have my tabernacle out here, but I think, did I put this on their page or not? This isn't on there, but you had the, the brazen altar of sacrifice where it was made, and then right in front of that you had the brazen lever where the priest would wash before he took it in. And then as he went in, on the right you had the table of showbread, on the left you had the candelabra, you had the menorah, and then as he went into the Holy of Holies you had the altar of incense and you had the Ark of the Covenant. You had a cross inside the tabernacle itself. Unbelievable. And so on top of all that when you just try to picture what this camp would have looked like, you're standing up on a mountain, you're seeing this giant cross, and you have the Shekinah glory of God coming out of the tabernacle. I mean, Pastor Frank talked about that in the first service. You know, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Can you imagine at night? Well, how high was that pillar? I think it probably went all the way up to the stars. I don't think it was just this little... I think it was huge. And it was the presence, it was the Shekinah presence of God that would have lit up the whole camp of Israel. I mean, you look at that and you think, that's amazing. And then we, re- then we remember this same God who did all this, who accomplished all this, desires to come and dwell within our heart as a seal and deposit of our salvation. Anyone, no one's excluded, who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved from all their sin and all their death and, 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 and eternal death. Because here's the thing, brothers and sisters. We all, we all know we're sinners. We all know we're sinners. There's not a day that we lay down at night and we don't think, oh my gosh. 
For all have sinned. We're all sinners. But here's the good news, the grace of God. The grace of God is not an excuse for us to go out and say, well, I can go do whatever I want because of the grace of God. The grace of God is that we might recover from sin. You see the difference? One is like pre-grace. Well, I'll go out and do whatever I want because i got the grace of God. The other one is, I have sinned. God will forgive me by his mercy, and I'll be able to be back into relationship with him. And the wonderful thing is, brothers and sisters, when you take a fall, when you fall to sin, you don't have to go back to the beginning and start over again. When you get up, you start off right where you are. You guys know my verse, right? Proverbs. Though a righteous man fall seven times, he rises again, but the wicked fall by calamity. So the point is, the sign of being a righteous person isn't that you never fall. It's that you get back up and you start following Jesus. I mean, I'd ask you to raise your hand if you've never fallen to sin, but I don't want to make you out a liar, so I won't do that. Because we've all fallen and fall short of the glory of God. And the reason that we bring this out, because it shows God's love for us. All God has ever desired is to have a relationship with his people. That's all he's ever desired. And Adam and Eve broke that relationship by disobeying him and believing Satan. And Jesus was so loving that he was willing to come to earth as a man in order to restore that relationship with God. It's absolutely amazing. It's mind-boggling. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, if, if you have a scientific mind, if you have you know, a mathematical mind or, or just a very inquisitive mind, read the Bible with an open mind, and your mind will be blown. I mean, how can you look at things like I've covered this morning? I know it was a lot, and it might even be confusing, but if you look at what I've covered this morning, it's mind-blowing. The Israelites set up their camp like a cross. And redemption comes through the cross. Testelestoy. It is paid in full. Jesus Christ died on a cross and all of our sins are forgiven and taken away. How amazing. It's absolutely amazing. So when we think about Jesus Christ coming to earth in the flesh, we have real reason to celebrate. It's our redemption, brothers and sisters. Father in heaven, we thank you for this portion of Scripture and the great lessons that are found in it. And I pray, Lord, that even though there were a lot of figures and numbers and kind of confusing, that these, your people, would take that little book at home, open up the book of numbers, and have their minds blown. I thank you, Jesus, for all that you do and for all that you are. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen and amen.